We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Ephesians chapter 1. I don't know about you, but sanctification can be hard. Am I only speaking for myself? The fight against sin. Goodness, it can be relentless, right? Relentless. When you feel its weight, let me ask you, where do you turn? Because, let's be honest, it's a heavy weight. And sometimes it can feel like it's about to crush us. So where do you turn? Did you know that your quest for holiness, did you know that you're not alone on this quest? In fact, the entire Trinity is with you, empowering you, even when you don't feel like it. When we think about our sanctification, our minds are drawn, of course, to the Holy Spirit, and rightly so. But whenever we witness the Spirit in Scripture, whether He is descending on the disciples at Pentecost, or indwelling that assembly of believers in the book of Acts, it's not as if the Holy Spirit has gone solo. Nor is it the case that the Spirit is merely cooperating with the Father or the Son. Whatever the Spirit does and accomplishes, the triune God does and accomplishes. To the Corinthians and Thessalonians, Paul can say that Christ, Christ, Christ Himself is our sanctification. And he can pray that the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And then Peter can rejoice that God's elect are secure in the sanctification of the Spirit. I love what Basil of Caesarea says. If you've enjoyed getting to hear a few times from Gregory, uh, Basil is also someone that you should consider He says this, in all things, the Holy Spirit is inseparable and wholly incapable of being parted from the Father and the Son. And then listen to this line. In every operation, the Spirit is closely conjoined with and inseparable from the Father and the Son. Conjoined with inseparable from. This is the language, Emmaus. This is the language we want to be after. Because phrases like these protect the unity, the simplicity, remember that word? Of our triune God. Guarding us from dangers like tritheism on the one hand or subordinationism on the other. Phrases like these, they serve us. They ensure that our triune God acts as one because our triune God is one. He's one in essence. So whenever we refer to the triune God's action toward the world, towards you, 
we must recognize that this is an indivisible, singular action, as indivisible as that one essence the persons share in common. And likewise, whenever we refer to that unity, the Trinity's singular one essence, we recognize that it's an indivisible essence, as indivisible as their one singular action Father, Son, and Holy Spirit perform in common with one another. Here's the point. It's because our triune God is one that He acts as one. Maybe we could say it this way. Our triune God's action is one. The external works of the Trinity are undivided. Period. Now to clarify, this unity between the Father and the Son, and you've you've heard me say this before, but we're going to beat this drum because it is so crucial. This unity between Father, Son, and Spirit is not merely a getting along. It's not like our unity. It's not merely a cooperation of separate persons. Nor is this unity accomplished by merely a division of labor. That may be how we work. No, the unity of the triune God is far more one. It's not as if there is one work to accomplish and that one work is somehow divided up among the three persons. Both of these options are insufficient. They're riddled with heretical tendencies as well. When we say God acts as one, we assume, or at least we should assume, He is one. Since His very nature, essence, is one, therefore He acts as one. He is not merely cooperating. They are not merely performing different acts and somehow we add these up so that they get along and end up on the same page. Our triune God is performing a single act that accords with the triune God's single will. I cannot emphasize this enough. Tune in for just a second here. Let me have your attention. You have to listen to these words carefully. One and the same action. One and the same divine nature. There's a phrase for this that we love to use in theology. Maybe you've heard it, maybe you haven't. Either way, I want you to write it down. I want you to memorize it. I want you to circle it. I want, I want it to be ingrained in your brain. I want it to be infused in your heart. Here it is. Inseparable operations. Inseparable operations. The three persons are without separation or division in all of their external operations towards the world. Whether they be creation, providence, or salvation. Which we're going to talk a lot about this morning. Now that raises an interesting question. Because if the Trinity is one in operation, why then does Scripture 
focus on, say, a particular person at any given time. I have another word for you. This word can help us answer that question. And it's just one word this time. Appropriation. Appropriation. The word appropriation means to draw toward, to put near to that which is proper. The word appropriation explains how the Scriptures can speak of a person of the Trinity whenever an act of the triune God is in focus. As one theologian has said, appropriation attributes an action or an effect to a divine person in a special way without excluding the other two. Did you hear that? That qualification, without excluding the other two, is important. Unless we divide up the Trinity and compromise its singularity, its unity, its simplicity. What's the purpose of this word appropriation? Well, I actually think the purpose of this word is to echo to even mimic the Scriptures in countless ways. Whenever the Scriptures shine its spotlight on one person, as we just said, in a special way, though never to the exclusion of the other two. While every act of God in creation, providence, and your redemption is the single act of the triune God, nevertheless, certain acts may terminate on certain persons or be appropriated by a person of the Trinity in a special manner. It's always the one undivided God acting according to His one undivided will. But attention may be given to a certain person of the Godhead. But always, always, always in a way that is consistent with, fitting with their eternal relations of origin. Another, another phrase we keep coming back to. The Father as unbegotten. The Son as eternally begotten. And the Spirit as eternally spirated from the Father and the Son. I love what Herman Bavink says. All things proceed from the Father, are accomplished by the Son, and are completed by the Holy Spirit. Now, it's... It's at this point in the sermon that it would be really easy to just move forward. I wanted us to pause for a minute and think about, here we're going to sum up so much of what you've learned the past month and a half. Two months, I think. How does all of this connect? Who God is in and of Himself and what you and I see in the Scriptures whenever we look at creation or salvation. Is there a correspondence that is fitting? The answer is absolutely yes. So let's think about this. What about the Father? Let's start with the Father. And by the way, this is not in any way original to me. Gregory, as well as a reformer like John Calvin and countless others, love to talk this way. Think about the Father. Here we see the beginning of activity, the fountain and wellspring of all things. Every work has its beginning from the Father. Now why is that so fitting? 
It's fitting because this is the same Father who is unbegotten in eternity. What about the Son? He is the Father's wisdom, the Father's counsel, the ordered disposition of all things. Every work is advancing through the Son. Why is this so fitting? Because this is the same Son who is begotten from the Father from all eternity. And of course, we can't leave out the Holy Spirit, can we? The Father and the Son's power and efficacy. Every work is completed and perfected in the Holy Spirit. And why is this so fitting? Because this is the same Spirit, spirated by the Father and the Son, proceeding from the Father and the Son from eternity. Do you see the beauty of all of this? That who God is makes all the difference for everything you see around you from creation to salvation itself. The gospel story depends on this fitting correspondence. So let's just think of two examples. Creation and salvation. Creation is the one act of the triune God. It's not as if only the Father creates and He says to the Son, Spirit, you just sit over there, let me handle this. Left to the side. No. The Father, Son, and Spirit together will to create the cosmos. And they do so as the one undivided God. And yet, consistent with what we just said, those eternal relations of origin, we can also distinguish between the three persons and then observe creation's cause. Basil says it this way, it is the Father who is the original cause. The Son who is the creative cause. And the Spirit who is the perfecting cause. Creation is brought into existence by the will of the Father, by the operation of the Son, and it is perfected by the presence of the Spirit. Do you realize this? You've been made in God's image. The Holy Trinity has created you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What about salvation? Look at Ephesians 1 with me. When I was a young Christian, God used this very passage. Maybe, maybe this is you. Maybe God has used a passage like Ephesians 1. He used this in my life at a young age to teach me about His grace, about the doctrines of grace even about God's sovereignty in giving this grace to us from eternity to time to everything that's to come. But as I kept reading Ephesians 1, have you ever noticed this? The sovereignty of God's grace and our salvation is Trinitarian through and through. Who is it that gives us this grace? Paul says it. Look, look at Verses 3 and 4, Paul says, it is, the God, it is God the Father 
who has blessed us in Christ and chose us in Him, Christ, before the world was created. Seriously? We, we, we you and, and me, we are those who've been chosen, elected by the Father, and chosen in His very Son? Notice what he says next. Paul grounds our adoption in time and space in this eternal predestination. But he doesn't do so apart from the Trinity. God the Father, verse 5. God the Father predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Yet not only does God the Father elect us in His Son from all eternity, but He also sends His Son. This is unthinkable. He sends His only begotten Son to die for us in history. That's why Paul says, look at verse 7, that it's in Him, Christ, that we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. What about the Holy Spirit? Look at verses 13 and 14. What the Father planned and the Son accomplished, the Spirit has applied. Think of the moment Do you remember this moment? Maybe for some of you, you don't. That's okay. But for some of you, you might remember this moment when you first heard about Jesus. You might have been seven years old as your mom told you who Jesus is. Or maybe you were 40 years old resisting this Christ with every every fiber of your being until Christ Himself came and conquered your stubborn heart. Either way, was it not the Holy Spirit who sealed you? Do you realize that now, looking back on what happened to you, that it was the Holy Spirit Himself that sealed your salvation? In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, isn't that what we're doing here at Emmaus? We are making sure, we are laboring to make sure you hear with your ears. Christians are people with ears. It's a religion of the ear that you hear with your ears the word of truth. Who is that? The word of truth is Christ. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. It's not done yet, is it? Until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Do you see? This is, this is unthinkable. Past present and future, all of salvation, all of this is due to the Holy Trinity. 
The Spirit is your assurance right now, Christian. Your assurance. Your down payment until you secure in full that inheritance predestined for you from all eternity. What do we conclude from all of this? I think we have to say something like this. The Father is the author of salvation. The Son, its Redeemer, and the Spirit, its Sanctifier. The Father is the source of our salvation. The Son, the Redeemer of our salvation. And the Spirit, your Comforter in salvation. And yet... And yet, each component of salvation, no exceptions here, each component of salvation is the single act, the single achievement, the single accomplishment of the Trinity. If that is not a mystery worth spending your life pondering, I don't know what is. It doesn't get more personal than that, does it? Does this relate at all to your Christian life? To the fellowship and communion that you have with this God? If divine appropriations, as we've been calling it, gives us a license to speak of the persons in a way that corresponds to who they are apart from us, their eternal relations of origin, then it's fitting to think that we, as adopted children of our triune God, we, we have the privilege of having communion, fellowship with each of these persons. One of my favorite Puritans, John Owen, spent so much time thinking about this. He was a pastor, by the way. He wanted to make sure Christians like you were solidified in the Trinity so that you could live your Christian life. He not only answered yes, but he said, the Christian who does not have communion, fellowship with all three persons you are missing out. Are you missing out? Communion with each person, he says, is what makes the Christian life so Christian. <laughs> Imagine this. Kids, maybe some of you in here will resonate with this. What is one of the best times of the year? Well, for my kids, it's Christmas morning. And yes, it's because of Jesus. But let's be honest, we love those presents. <laughs> As my kids will tell you, Dad, when do we get to open the presents? Is it time yet? It's like still five days away. It's coming. It's coming. But imagine, children, imagine if you came downstairs Christmas morning. And if you're anything like my kids, they don't wait for mom and dad to wake up. It's way too early, but it's Christmas. 
6 o'clock, maybe 7, if we're lucky, you come running down the stairs. And what do you see? Presents everywhere, right? Presents. You can't wait to open them. And then mom and dad come in the room and say, aren't those beautiful? Wouldn't you love to open those presents? Yeah, we're not going to open them. We're not going to open them. It's going to be a regular day like any other day. I think probably most of you kids would probably kill mom and dad at that point. But Christian, don't you see? Don't you see this is exactly what we are doing when we don't think about our communion with God through the lens of the Trinity? It's like not opening Christmas presents on Christmas morning. On the one hand, we have communion with the whole Trinity anytime we enjoy communion, communion at all. I've shared this sentence with you. I'm going to share it again from John Owen. He says, By what act soever we hold communion with any person, there is an influence from every person to the putting forth of that act. Well, that's just John Owen's way of saying indivisible in essence, inseparable in operation, creation, providence, salvation. To enjoy fellowship with one person is to come under the influence of all three persons. I think he would have loved what Gregory said. We keep saying this quote because it's just so memorable. No sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. And no sooner do I distinguish them that I am carried back to the one. And on the other hand, we can't stop We can't stop there, can we? On the other hand, we can know each person, says Owen, in a distinct way that corresponds. It's fitting to each person's eternal relation of origin. As the unbegotten Father from whom the Son is begotten and the Spirit aspired, the Father is the source, the principle of the Godhead. And so too is He the source of our communion. Listen to this. From From Him flows a fountain of love. Like sweet nectar from a flower. I I can't emphasize this enough because so often, and I know I'm tempted to do this, I think of the Father in negative terms first. As someone who's displeased with me. But you need to hear this. He is a fountain of love for you. What distinguishes our communion with the Father is His free, undeserved, and eternal love. Out of this everlasting love for us, He sent His Son, His only begotten Son, to die for us. And we, united to His Son, we are the recipients of the Father's everlasting benevolence towards us. Because He has redeemed His elect through His Son, by His Spirit. If the Father's love is that that nectar, that sweet nectar from the flower, our communion with the Son is by His grace. It's the fruit of the flower. Bought with His blood, we 
We're going to see this in a minute, aren't we? We've been bought with his blood. We then enjoy his righteousness. You have his righteousness. And once we've tasted the fruit of his righteousness, John Owen says, our soul melteth in longing after him. Do you long for Christ this morning? Do you want Jesus more than anything? Sin, if, when, you, when you are there in that longing, sin loses its appeal. We want nothing more than Christ. He becomes our soul's one passion, our everlasting delight. Listen to John Owen. Upon discovery of the excellency and sweetness of Christ in the banqueting house, the soul is instantly overpowered and cries, cries out to be made partaker of the fullness of it. What is he saying? Christ. He's not only the reservoir of our everlasting delight. He's the bedrock of our eternal fortress. We possess great spiritual safety through our communion with Christ. What about the Holy Spirit? The daily cultivation of communion with Christ is impossible apart from the consolation of the Holy Spirit. It's impossible. As the Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son, the Spirit is the one who can bring us into communion with the Father and the Son. The love of the Father shows to us the grace of His Son. And that is communicated to us by the Spirit of His Son. The Spirit pledges the Father's love to you, Christian. Comforting you. Consoling you with all the promises that are yours in Christ Jesus. This is why Jesus says to his disciples, I want you to meet your comforter, your helper. He is your consolation, your ever-present, your ever-present comfort in life and in death. Even you suffering right now, are you crushed right now? Even in the worst moments, the darkest moments of suffering, the Spirit is there to dispense the Father's love for you in Christ Jesus. It's probably fitting to conclude a preaching series on the Trinity with a quote from Athanasius, and the Apostle Paul. When we participate in the Spirit, we have the grace of the Word, and in the Word, the love of the Father. Of course, Athanasius is simply echoing Paul's benediction to the Corinthians. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ 
and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Emmaus, if our communion with the Father is by His love, if our communion with the Son is by His grace, and if our communion with the Spirit is by His consolation and comfort, how should you respond? With joy and gladness in your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, knowing with full assurance from the Holy Spirit that your Father will embrace you as His child, redeemed by the blood of His only begotten Son. Amen? Amen. Friends, this morning, we come to this table. But we don't do so as if what has been accomplished to make this table present is anything but our triune, trinitarian God. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus says this, He took the bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is My body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in My blood. Friends, this meal is a sign of the new covenant. As we eat, the Holy Spirit seals on our consciences the Father's benevolence towards us in the grace of His Son, Jesus Christ. This meal is not for the mighty. It is for the weak. Do not come to this table self-righteous. This is a meal for weak, humble sinners. You come to this table with every assurance then that your sins... Every sin is covered by the blood of Christ. And that even now the Spirit will sustain you. He's doing that here at this meal. He is sustaining you. Strengthening your faith until your sanctification is made complete. That's why we keep taking it. How spectacular is this meal? By eating and drinking, the Holy Spirit lifts you up so that you enjoy communion and fellowship with the risen and ascended Savior, your Savior, Jesus Christ, who has secured for you all the spiritual, all the spiritual, every single spiritual blessing that the Father Himself has prepared for you before the foundation of the world. If you do not have the Holy Spirit indwelling you, if you do not have faith in the blood of Jesus Christ, and if you still stand under the judgment of God, this meal is not yours. Not yet. But please come. Come. Talk to us. We would love nothing more than to tell you about the salvation that the Holy Trinity has planned, accomplished, and applied. The following audio is from Amaze KC. More information about Amaze KC is available online at www.amazekc.com.